them Dee Dee. I use them they. It's not a preference. They are my pronouns. I was born in the South. And I lived there until I was like 18 years old and I've been living in the Northwest for the last 20 years. And luckily the last 20 years I really have been able to be more open with my non-binary trans identity. Um, even though I was open with it when I was younger, I just uh, probably hid more under more guise of punk rock aesthetic so people would be less enticed to see my queer aesthetic. And now I'm like full force femme and I love it. And I think that comes with um, age, experience, learning to love yourself and learning to tune out the outside world, um, which is, sometimes is impossible. Is that something that you wanted to express like your uh, femme identity, but didn't feel like you were able? Or? Absolutely. And okay. told not to. Okay. I mean, I literally went was I'll age myself. I'm almost 40 years old this year. And I went to school in a time where you couldn't be femme. And if you did, they blamed it on you. If you got beat up, um, if you come to school with colored hair, you're asking for it, uh, fit in, be normal. That was kind of, it was all put on me as my fault for what was happening to me. When in reality, what was happening to me is I was experiencing transphobia and homophobia and no one was doing anything about it because there wasn't safety and there still is no safety where I'm from. And uh, born in Florida, raised in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is one of the worst place for a trans or queer identifying person to be living at. And then on top of it, they have a huge population of queer and trans identifying people. Um, Portland to me seemed like a safer space it felt safer to me, and that might have to do with my intersection of whiteness as well as a queer person. Um, but I will take that because safety to me is how I'm able to continue providing for others and move past kind of like my traumas that I've been experiencing my whole life. It sets me in motion to be more community minded instead of hiding, which is what the world really wanted me to do. I had parents that didn't mind that I was gay, but did not understand the gender thing. Uh, did not understand the need to wear makeup, did not understand the need to wear dresses or clothing, and still not want to be a woman because that is not my identity. My identity is a non-binary trans femme person. I am lucky enough to not have dysphoria in a way that I need to do more than, to my body than what feels comfortable to me. And I'm lucky for that. I think, you know, for a lot of trans people, it isn't an A to Z transition. Some people land in the middle and I've definitely landed in the middle. And, um, that's a comfort zone for me. And it's also my identity. And, uh, the funny thing is, is when I was younger, I didn't even know how to describe myself to people. I always described myself to people as a beautiful boy. Because that was the only language as a farm boy from Oklahoma to be able to describe their non-binary queer identity. And now that I'm older with an access to education, access to other queer community, access to working inside a queer supportive company, I am able to access language that I never knew before. So I'm able to describe myself. I'm also able to describe the youth that I work with. And I think that's so helpful for them. A lot of people think you're an identity, and just because you're, you're that identity, that you hold all the knowledge to that identity. And that is 
far from the truth. We actually have to discover who we are, discover the language in which we describe ourselves. Yeah, and you never know. You never yeah. know what's hiding, and you never know if you're hiding from yourself until you find yourself, and you're like, no, I'm yeah. not going to give up on who I am. I'm going to be who I am, regardless of the adversity that I experienced. Because for me, to hide, to shave my head, to put on a suit, I could do that. But more than likely, I would take my own life in a few years, right? Mm -hmm. Because I am not living authentically myself. Mm -hmm. And that, the internal hatred for one's own body, for me personally, is way worse than the external hatred I experience from the outside world. Right. I would rather people misgender me uh, than for me to misgender myself on purpose. It took me so long to love my voice. Like, I would hear it in feedback. I would hear it when I would record my messages. And I would feel so shame for it. Because people, at first glance, see me kind of as a femme person. But as soon as I talk, they know that there is some sort of maleness inside this body. And it, it um, outs me to everyone, right? It outs me as a non-binary person. It outs me as a trans femme person. Um... And we are taught to change that. We're taught to shrink. I'm taught to minimize how I talk to people, to not be aggressive with my actions or my movements. And like, that is not something I'm willing to compromise. I learned to love my voice the way it is. It's my voice. I'm grateful though that I have that. And that's another set of privileges that some people don't see. For me, I do see my privilege, uh, even though I do carry intersections of oppression and marginalization, I still see that I have the privilege of loving my voice and not feeling discomforted by it. That is not something that everyone carries. But it takes work. It takes work. And, and some people are willing to do that because they need their own comfort. And that is what we are discovering about trans identity, non-binary identity. There is no one-off identity when it comes to gender and sexuality. There are so many spaces in which someone can express themselves. Um, I think we've come to a place where we're realizing there is no binary, that we've been taught wrong our entire life, and now we're at the point where we're trying to accept all the new words and terminology without erasing everyone else's identity at the same time, right? Because it's not about erasing people's identities, it's actually about opening up the idea that there are more identities out there than what we're allowing to exist. And that's where my marginalization comes in, that's where our youth that I work with, their marginalization comes in. And then if you layer on intersections of uh, class and race and housing security, you know, I don't have to tell everyone how harder it gets for someone that identifies as a trans person or as a queer person, even if they do live in a city like Portland that's very comfortable and very open publicly, but individually, the microaggressions and the transphobia and the homophobia that is experienced every year, especially this week. We're in the middle of uh, Pride Week, but it's also Festival Week, which is gay bash season. Uh, when the boats come in, all the queer people know to contact each other, to stay in contact with each other, to like let us know when Fleet Week's over, let us know when we can get back downtown. That is type of the community that a lot of queer people have had to build rather than building community in safe spaces that celebrate ourselves, right? Like the Rose Parade, all of the Starlight Parade, Fleet Week comes in, but then it also happens right in front of Pride. So city planning plans all of these things that bring in outside sources, you know, from the suburbs and, 
and rural areas that don't have experience being inside Portland with its queer bubble, its trans bubble, that we have a, a more of a population in Portland, Oregon than we do in most major cities when you compare numbers. Right. And so what we experience as those visible queer and trans people is an uptick in violence towards us, whether it's verbal, whether it's physical, or whether it's sneers. You know, um, a couple of my friends have heard people yell things out of their car at them. We know that the Proud Boys, who are associated with white supremacists, have been in town, in and around town, causing trouble, attacking people of color, and also openly visible queer people. And that's the danger we live in. Every year when we are asked to celebrate ourselves, we're also asked to police ourselves. And it's a dichotomy that, or dichotomy that no one wants to discuss or fix. And we have to do the fixing ourselves, right? Like the outside world doesn't want to listen to that or hear that. Um, as I'm talking right now, our program, one of our programs is in a basement. You know, we uh, queer people get to gather in queer spaces, but we are separated from everyone else because we need that right now so we can actually build our own selves up to go out in the world and actually prepare for the daily microaggressions, the daily transphobia, homophobia that happens. And a lot of people don't want to believe us when it happens, right? They don't want to believe that I know when someone looks at me that I know they're telling me I don't believe to breathe the same air as them. I know the look because I've learned the look my whole life. I know the look of when someone's about to hit me. That is not something I would want anyone, especially young and queer trans youth, to know. And I know that many other queer people and many other people of color, especially trans women of color, know that look. They know when someone's about to put their hands on them. That's a lifelong trauma that we will live. We will, I'm not sure I will ever live in a world that is fully accepting of my gender expression or my identity. And all I'm hoping for is that the people that I'm working with now, which are 13 to 23 year old LGBT queer and trans youth in Portland specifically, is that they don't think the way that I'm thinking when they're my age. That they actually see a glimpse and a hope that the world is accepting and will change. Because right now we're just being fed everything that it's not, it's going backwards. Hmm. It feels like to me anyways. Everyone feels like their hate can be something that they're allowed. You can say whatever you want, but you, people are learning they're being held accountable for what they say. Freedom of speech does not mean freedom of inaction. Like, you can't threaten people, you can't be a racist and not think people are going to point it out and hold you accountable to it. You not think you can't say stuff and not lose your job. You can, and you are, and you will. You know, and I'm yeah. grateful for those moments. There are hundreds upon thousands of identities in this country, and right now we are being marginalized by a couple, and to be honest, that is white cis male people for the most part, right. and also white cis female people do benefit a lot over others, and we don't talk about that because it hurts the majority's feelings to recognize that they are part of the problem. And that's wherein lies marginalization right. and oppression. But we got the passive-aggressive racist in Portland. We have the ones that will not say anything, but will call the cops on you behind your back or make the complaint to the HR person behind your back. That is the racism that, that I find that my friends of color are telling me about their experience living in Portland or not being invited to certain places because they think that people of color don't enjoy them. Uh, one of my friends was sharing about their love of hiking. 
and how they see all their white friends go out and hike and yet they're not invited and they're like I hike all the time and I show pictures and people know I do this and you recognize and I recognize in my moments of where my whiteness steps in I'm taught as a white person to be racist just because I'm queer and trans does not mean I escaped the south does not mean I escaped the pacific northwest and the social institutions and the work environments that set us up to not like people and we have yeah. to fight our insides we have to fight our actions and we have to change them and sometimes that means being icky inside ourselves and doing really tough work on ourselves right. and like it doesn't feel good like yeah. the nastiness that's in have us to admit you're racist we were, yeah yeah and just having to like do therapy or yeah. like get into therapy or <laughs> you know therapy uh is so not talked about and i want to say that i'm openly therapy. will say i'm in therapy openly uh working on mental health and uh i will say that um when i go in and i talk to my therapist it isn't a singular story what i'm hearing is uh marginalized people of color marginalized trans people and marginalized queer people are overwhelmingly receiving mental health services whether it be chronic PTSD anxiety panic people of color not being able to find providers of color queer people not being able to find queer providers that actually understand the background and the lives that we've lived rather than the story and the chapter they read in their textbook during school um, that's what we're finding. The majority of the country doesn't have to second guess that because they fit into the narrative of heterosexual, white male, white female, or just cisgendered male, cisgendered female, and never have to contemplate those things mm -hmm. where the rest of us spend a lifetime looking for services that actually work. So would you tell me a little bit about Smirk and what your yeah. position is, what you do here? Yes, yeah, so I do, I'm called a Smirk advocate, but I do so much more than that. Um, I would say my job is divided up into a couple different spaces. What is Smirk first? Um, Smirk is Sexual and Gender Youth Minority Resource Center. The G is silent because we added it on later because we grow and change just like everyone else does. And so we work with uh, queer and trans youth as the language they want us to use. So that's the language I'm going to use when I'm speaking on behalf of them. And they're 13 to 23. We have two different locations, one in Southeast at Open School uh, East Room 107 and one downtown at 1220 Southwest Columbia, uh, five days a week. And then also besides that, I also do one-on-one. -on -one. So I go into behavioral centers or I go into group homes and I work one-on-one -on -one individually with queer or trans youth that are not getting the mentorship they need from their providers. Uh, we're finding out that a lot of providers are not educated and not trained to work with specific identities. And luckily they are reaching out to Smirk. So I join DHS wraparound teams. Um, I go into behavioral centers. I go into uh, uh, boys' homes where trans girls are being housed at, uh, which is depressing and it's sad. And I go there to make sure that there is someone there that knows their story, knows their truth, and can hold the staff and other providers accountable to that truth. And I find that to be one of the most powerful pieces of my job besides the daily hanging out with our youth which is in itself challenging rewarding tiring exhilarating it's everything and you know we live our own traumas as queer providers i'm an openly person 
with all of our youth. I'm open about my gender. I'm open about my sexuality. And we don't get that in a lot of workspaces. Um, How did you get into smart? Yeah, I got into there really working my tail off. I come from poverty, adjunct poverty. I was lucky enough to latch on to a richer friend to move me out to the Pacific Northwest. Um, I started volunteering at Q Center, another shout out to another LGBTQ Center in uh, Portland that does important work not only with queer youth as well, but the aging population. We're aging. We are becoming older queer people. We are not being murdered at the numbers we were. We are not dying at the numbers we were. We are becoming old and gray haired and beautiful and I love it and I can't wait for it. But um, I volunteered there as the volunteer coordinator, and I actually started cleaning the bathrooms at Smirk about five years ago. And through cleaning the bathrooms and getting to know the hair clogs and the crumbs at the computer, I got to know the youth because I got to know their messes, and then in return got to know them, and they built a relationship with me, and I built a relationship with them. So I was really asked to come um, on to Smirk, um, and I'm so grateful for that because... I don't think I would have ever been given that opportunity um, because of where I come from and because it took me so long to catch up to where others are already at in their 20s. I had to catch up in my 30s. And that's a big difference in a story that isn't often told with uh, trans and queer people is that we go to school later in life a lot of times. We sometimes don't go to school at all. We work on lived experience rather than uh, proof of work experience. and. Yeah. A lot of people don't buy that as valuable, and it actually You're is some like of the most. My story right yeah, now. right. It's some <laughs> of the most valuable um, information that a body can hold is their own story, and that's a thing you learn years and years. And it's different with every youth because guess what? Every youth is different. They're individualized. There is so much diversity at Smirk. Everyone that comes in is so different. It is amazing to watch. And the thing that people often don't talk, we talk so much about queer identity, transness, uh, the trauma we experience, the PTSD. We don't talk about the beauty in our community, the talent in our community, our open mic nights where youth are getting up and singing songs they're writing themselves, learning the instruments that we have downstairs themselves on their own time, writing poetry that would shake your bone and your soul. Uh, that story goes so untold, and that is the heartbreaking part of my job, is a lot of times we're asked to share the sadness, we're asked to share the trauma, we're asked to share the obstacles, rather than the beauty, the talent, the people, the faces, the names. Um, every year we lose someone to suicide. Every, every year we lose someone to suicide. Um, it never gets easy. You never forget their name, and that trauma can be pulled like I could cry right now. Um, that trauma doesn't go. You just learn how to work with it, and you learn that it's not your story, that it's their story, and how you celebrate them in death may need to look different than how they were celebrated in life because a lot of our youth go uncelebrated, and that is why I think it's important sometimes to focus on other things besides oppression and marginalization when it comes to queer and trans youth. If we could promote them rather than extort their sadness or their trauma, we might have different outcomes. And maybe not for everyone, but for some. Oh, I'm fine. I can cry all day oh, and let a tear. Oh, yeah, thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it means a lot to me because I didn't experience that as a youth. I experienced... People wanting to cover my story up, people being ashamed of my story, uh, people 
my own parents not wanting to be in public with me. Right. Um, a lot of our youth come in with no family. They build a family inside Smirk. They build a family with the staff, and they build a family with the youth. And they're... Uh, a lot of people are experiencing... Uh, houselessness that oh definitely instability and uh, addiction in queer community skyrockets when you're a trans person and you can't get a job you can't get housed when you're a trans person and your family hates you you're going to run away rather than stay in a home that berates you and belittles you every single day to where maybe you take your own life right you're going to do whatever you need to do so a lot of our youth that is a story that isn't shared the survival skills that they have to be able to live on the street as one of these marginalized identities at 14, 15, 16 years old, because a lot of services you understand, if you're under 18, they want to rehouse you back in the house where you're experiencing transphobia or homophobia from the people who are supposed to be supporting you. And then 18, you get in all these resources, so then you're put in with other people that maybe don't have the best self-love, and the best self-expression of love to others. And so then more trauma is added into the mix because they're all living in trauma together in shelters and in homes. And, and they never get an opportunity to live the beauty that they know they have, but they don't get to see because no one shares it with them. No one points it out. No one celebrates it. Uh, what do you think could be done outside of smirk to like change the narrative and media? They need to start celebrating what happens. Talk about pride. They need to go to schools when a GSA is happening and there are trans people talking and youth talking. Listen. Support that. Listen to that. Go to an award ceremony. There are so many things happening. There are queer proms all over the city. We don't hear about those things. We don't hear about the promotion of like our, our Queer Youth Summit that we put on every year. It's called Oregon Queer Youth Summit. And I don't see a lot of news coverage on that. But that is a youth event where it's educated by youth, led by youth, for youth. And there are hundreds of queer and trans youth that come to, to do this every year. Queer Rock Camp, where we teach youth how to form a band. By the end of the week, they are performing a set. Plus PSU and some other providers that I'm forgetting the name of, so my apologies <laughs> out there. Because there are so many places doing work. Transactive is doing work. Uh, Sankofa is doing work. Uh, a living Room in Oregon City is doing work. Triple Point in Vancouver is doing work. But you know what? We're doing the work because the outside world isn't. We have to be specific with our work because the outside world still is not opening up their community to us. They are keeping us from community, and that's why we have built our own. That's why every marginalized community builds their own, and they stay with their own type. And why wouldn't you if all you experience is trauma and pain and questions that have nothing to do with how you're going to be today or what you're going to do for someone today? Right, like I don't live in a supportive space. I don't live in a supportive city even though there is a bubble of transness and queerness that is here. I still get microaggressions around my name, my pronouns, every single day. A drive-through, I am being served every single time. A customer courtesy call, even from Smirk to people who should know better, still do that to me. But there's a set of privilege. I get to go down there and be a mentor to youth. They look up to me and they want to see someone like me in a professional setting. That will come to work in short shorts and a tutu, right? But I have an education backing me up. I spent a lot of money and a lot of time dedicating myself to the information. My name's Emery. I'm 27 years old. 
live here in, in Portland. Um, moved here just about three years ago, really. Moved from Manchester, New Hampshire. It's funny, I've heard some people refer to themselves as, as refugees coming to Portland. And um, I kind of identify with that in some ways. I grew up in a very conservative town, conservative family. And yeah, just didn't fit, you know, um, such as most of my life story. Yeah, I moved here um, for more opportunity to be surrounded by diversity and and um, certainly found that in, in my three years. It's really helped me to uh, find myself one and blossom into my own person. I came out to my family and community about a year and a half ago. I um, identify as non-binary or genderqueer, as in I don't identify with exclusively as a male or a female, and um, something that I've, I've felt pretty clearly my entire life, but I didn't know that it was a thing until, you know, the last five or six years. And How really, did you find that? Um, through um, a friend of a friend, actually. I mean, I, I grew up in a pretty small community, and, you know, people didn't talk about being transgender. I, I mean... I knew one transgender person back in my town and they were, you know, they cross-dressed at the comic book store and that was my experience, but, you know, thank God we have the internet in these days, so I've been a part of the online community, I've found a lot of friends and company, ironically, on, on the platform Tumblr, and met a lot of different really cool people who were different than myself and those around me. And that's when I really started to explore, like, wow, who, who am I? Who who do I want to be? Who who can I be? And found that, you know, at some point it was just, I couldn't ignore it anymore. I was like, okay, like, this is definitely who I am. And, you know, I just remember being a child. I grew up in a, in a staunch Catholic household and feel so grateful to have had the parents I had. They were a little more progressive um, than other families that I knew. And so like my mom was always so supportive in the way that, you know, I always wanted Barbie dolls growing up. And she would let me carry my Barbie dolls around while she shopped. And I remember her getting criticism from people in line or people in the community, people at church. And but that was really to the extent at which she was supportive, you know. There was no conversation or, like, check-in about my identity or how I felt as a, as a human. Um, there was one time where I was getting old enough to be home alone while my mom went out. One time I went into her closet and, like, tried on all her dresses and her heels. And I remember looking in the mirror and being like, I love this like <laughs> yeah I love how it made me feel to you know stretch that boundary a little bit and explore my own persona she got home earlier than expected and found me in her bedroom with the dress and heels on and it was not received well you know and I remember her saying boys don't wear dresses several times and that was it. It was an understanding. She said, we're not going to talk about this anymore. And that's that. <laughs> and so I don't think that that experience is 
particularly unique, but it's also part of my story. And yeah, then, then this part of me became closeted, mm-hmm. as with my sexuality. And, um, haven't really revisited until I moved out of that state, you know? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, um, gender and sexuality are, are kind of independent of each other, and that's been my experience. Um, I came out as, as a homosexual male, you know, when I was 18, which was terrifying, but so important um, to honor my own identity. And, you know, I think that we as humans just want to be seen for who we are, you know. But still, like, it, it, there was part of me that couldn't quite put my finger on like oh this is you know I don't I don't identify as exclusively a male you know this a lot of these feminine feelings and you know I think some people experience like gender dysphoria you know and I, I was to an extent like experiencing that you know like I wasn't particularly attached or or married to the male body I was born into, you know. So what did uh, gender dysphoria look like for you? You know, over the years, it's, it's, it's come and it's gone. It's, you know, wax and wanes. And, you know, now I feel at home in my body and I, I understand that, you know, just because you're born with a certain set of body parts doesn't mean that you are one thing or the other. Mm-hmm. And, but as a child and teenager, you know, a lot of, like, shame and maybe shame isn't the right word. Just uncomfortability, you know, every time you get out of the shower and look in the mirror or mm-hmm. if you're with a partner um, in an intimate way, you just don't feel like you are your parts, your body. But um, definitely is not the case anymore. You describe yourself as someone who is gender fluid. And do you still, like, how do you identify sexually? Um, that's really interesting that you asked that, because um, in, in my experience settling into this identity, um, gender fluid, gender queer, non-binary, um, I've realized that my sexuality, too, is a little bit more fluid. I've, I've always identified as, as a homosexual, as someone attracted to, to male-bodied people. Um, but I find that to healthily challenged and I'm at a point in my life and my sexuality identity where I don't want to shut out the possibility of you know experiencing love or intimacy with something I've decided but it's not for me oh yeah Yeah. Um, so yeah as I don't identify as homosexual anymore just like I'm noticing <laughs> how much I want to categorize you. It's mm-hmm. like such a human thing that mm-hmm. we want to put in it. Like, I don't know. I don't think it's unique to me at all, but you know, and having people in my life that are mm-hmm. really not into that. It's like, mm-hmm. I notice it that much more in myself, you know? <laughs> like, I know. And, and myself also in, in my journey, um, all of the people that I've met out here and in my life, you know, that is such a human need or desire to, like, fit someone into this box and give them a label, you know. I think that's where, I know that's where I'm at right now and, and my identity is. I'm trying to, like, do much less of that because things shift and change and 
don't have to be one thing or the other. They can be both things. They can be all things. That's that's what I try to kind of drive home because I, I get a lot of questions um, from people um, at work and people that I know. You know, are you this? Are you that? And that's what's kind of happening right now. You know, and I know that I am certain things and I'm not certain things, but I'm also many things <laughs> at different times. So I. I'm curious about your everyday experience. So since you've moved to Portland and you've come come out as uh, genderqueer, have you found acceptance? Oh, absolutely. And it's kind of what encouraged me and empowered me to be more authentic to myself was because of the people that I was surrounded by. I had two very, very close friends at my last uh, workplace. They had both identified as uh, gender neutral non-binary and they really just encouraged me you know I said hey I'm like sat them down I was like I'm feeling these things and like I just can't believe how you like you choose to live like I didn't know like it's an it could be an identity or um, I just found company in a place that I felt so alone in for so long and you know so scary like telling your family like hey these are my preferred pronouns right now and like trying to like explain to someone who doesn't believe or doesn't accept like that kind of identity like how do you go about that explaining that to people who maybe <clears throat> seem a little more close-minded or mm -hmm. Um, and it, ha it has happened, um, even in Portland, too, you know, being a, a cashier and having my pronouns on my name tag. So I just kind of explain it in layman terms, like real, like, well, what, what does they, them mean? You know, oh, it means that I prefer to be referred to as they and them and that person instead, as opposed to he, she, and I, I just don't identify as either a boy or a girl. And sometimes I get, you know, like, huh, that's weird. Um, other times a little bit more offensive and a little bit more like, oh, well, I'm just going to call you it. And it's like, no. Have you I'm, actually heard that? Yeah, I, I have. Oh, <laughs> At work? At work, yeah, customer interaction. So, you know, in that case, you know, I can just brush something like that off. It's, it's has nothing to do with me. And I always hope that these interactions kind of open people's brains and minds and eyes to diversity. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I remember the conversation with my parents pretty clearly. Um, they had actually seen it. I came out like uh, on Facebook, kind of was like, "Hey guys, this is what's going on now." And you know, my dad said, "Hey, can your mother and I call you?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I think that'd be really good." <laughs> and um, again, like just this, for them, it was like kind of the same reaction when I came out as, as a homosexual. Like, are you sure you feel this way? is this going to be healthy for you? Like, and I, I am grateful that they asked more questions this time around. They really wanted to understand. That's and great. so I explained it to them the same way. Like, you know, remember when this happened, remember when that happened growing up. And like, I just feel much more comfortable as this, you know, I am not one or the other. And, um, you know, they heard me out, but, they were just kind of like, okay, and haven't really talked about it since. 
<laughs> do you have siblings? Uh, I do. How many? Um, I have two younger siblings. We're all three years apart. I'm the oldest, and then they've been so wonderful in this in this experience. They are to this day the only two people in my immediate family who um, use my pronouns and my chosen name, which feels really really good. What do your parents call you? Um, they call me my birth name. Uh, I was I was given the name Matthew growing up, the apostle, the evangelist, of Jesus himself. <laughs> <laughs> and do they call, they say he? Oh, yeah. When, okay. Yeah. How does that feel? Um, it doesn't feel great, um, but I have kind of chosen to, like, let go of that need for the time being. Um, we do have check-ins every once in a while where, like, hey, Dad, could you just use that name on Facebook in a public way like I understand this is hard for you but that's like a whole flip side of this experience is like feeling as if your identity is a burden or, or what pronouns you, you use like that fear or shame of like asking people for what you need you know so I've definitely like learned and grown a lot in all of these interactions. So what parts of yourself, or are there are there parts of yourself that you, or are there situations in which you feel more feminine or masculine? Yeah, day to day, um, I think, like, in general, I've just been a little bit more expressive in, in how I, I dress and how I present. Um, I'm finally, like, learning how to incorporate all those dresses I tried on in my mom's closet, you know, like wearing more feminine things, as we call them, yeah, you know, right. flowers and makeup and really having a fun time, like expressing myself in those ways. Um, but there are days that I feel a little bit more masculine or, you know, I'll wear tennis shoes, basketball shorts and a t-shirt. Other days I'm wearing booty shorts, tank top, and my lashes are all done, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it's just fun, and it feels good that I don't feel that I'm inside of this box anymore that I used to be, Yeah. I wear things that I feel, feel good in, you know, I'm, I'm not a great clothes shopper, I, it stresses me out, I need to make sure the clothing is exactly what I want, and so I, when I go shopping, I need to go by myself for a long time. I'm not a, like a very impulse buyer, you know. So what about like, it stresses you out? Maybe just in general, shopping, being in a public space, um, especially looking through women's clothes. I think a lot of that comes from my experience growing up. Like I don't necessarily feel that that fear is as rational in the place that I live and the, sh the shops that I go to. But it's always like, who's who's looking? Who's who's judging? Who's evaluating my choices right. um, so that that part is still stressful but less so you know I wouldn't dream of shopping in a women's section at a Target in New Hampshire you know yeah but now I do yeah and that's awesome <laughs> yeah I just was at Buffalo Exchange last week and there was a man shopping in the in the women's section and um, I mean it was like obviously for him because I just like yeah. myself by the way that he was dressed I was like oh yeah and I, like, hadn't really thought about it before, like, that that would be a source of, uh, of stress. And, like, it didn't, it just occurred to me. Like, it, it didn't, 
I didn't feel uncomfortable or uh, any way about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just it was just something that they notice, I guess. Like, huh. yeah. And I've realized this and learned this in my journey, and it's helped me learn that there are never any assumptions I can make about a person's identity. Um, and so, like, I was hearing you talk. And, like, I hear myself talk this way, too, like, evaluating. So you said you saw, like, a man at Buffalo Exchange. Like, it's not, like, I can't assume that they identify as a man. Um, Regardless of what they're wearing, like, you can't um, evaluate or make those assumptions based on how they look. Um, And that's been a really big lesson to learn. Like, yeah, like, I don't like it when people do it to me, but it's like, oh, I do that sometimes to other people. And, like... um, so I think that's like the biggest thing and the biggest beauty that I've learned is, you know, you don't even have to be gender neutral or identify as gender queer to express yourselves in masculine and feminine ways. Like, that's just who I am. You know, it, it, that's just, there's no rules in, in terms of my presentation or how someone chooses to present. And so I think I just gained a lot of respect and admiration for people around me and like instead of gendering someone regardless of how they look as a he or she I always you know say they them or like I've learned that it's like so okay to like ask someone their pronouns when I meet someone like that's my first question it's like hey what's your name and if the conversation's gonna go further like oh what pronouns do you prefer what pronouns do you use it's um so yeah it's just help me help me see everyone at their own essence and light do you find yourself being surprised by people's answers? Like, as if you have already put them in a in a box, that then, but, like, given them the opportunity mm-hmm. to identify themselves, but, like, you have already made a decision? Yeah, less and less and, so these days. Um, like, it's getting, it's getting more. It's, I think this is just, like, a big rewiring, right? So we grew up and have been raised in this binary, patriarchal society and so these things are all I like to describe it as software you know it's not hardware it's it's not part of us but it is has been programmed over the years through the media and our communities very enlightening and eye-opening and so fruitful and yeah living authentically like we should all try to do it (laughs) there is a an open mic happening live next door right at this moment so hear that uh, we're going to be hearing that in the background yeah. so well if they're yeah, good if you, if you hear silence whoever's on stage is bombing yeah. right now <laughs> yeah. and that's okay that's what I it's, okay. it's okay we're all it's learning okay. we only learn what we learn when we learn it exactly yep. it's true you don't learn much from succeed i'm belinda carroll and i'm andy barrett and we run the Portland Queer Comedy Festival. Um, well, it's a collaboration between Andy and I, and uh, we it's a festival that's four days, four venues, and over 50 comics, and 30 shows. Uh, we're the first multi-day, multi-stage queer comedy festival in the country. And it started uh, early last year. Uh, I came to Belinda and said, hey, what do you think about the idea of doing a queer comedy festival? She's like, that's a good idea. I was thinking the same thing. And then we just decided to do it. That's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and pulled it all together in way too short a time <laughs> last year. When we Five did, months. We, we, we pulled it all pulled it all together, and uh, last year went great. 
Um, was it a multi-stage? Same, same, yeah, same type same of deal. Four, four days, four days, four same venues. Same venues? Last year? Is this year? Different? Yeah, same mm-hmm. venues. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so we, we kept some of the stuff the same, and then some of the stuff we changed around. Like, we have new shows this year. We, we learned a lot headliners. of We learned a lot of lessons We learned a lot of year. lessons yeah. last year, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, so we have, uh, we have 50 comics coming from all over the country. So last year we were curated, and so I've been producing comedy shows for, um, stand-up comedy shows specifically for uh, almost 10 years. And so I've worked with comics for a long time, and so last year was just curated with people that I'd worked with before and that um, that I loved. And so um, we just invited them, and so last year was just a big party of, of those people. And then um, this year we actually accepted submissions and accepted people, and so we have comics coming from everywhere from North Carolina, from New York, from Toronto, um, from Ohio, like from, you know, from everywhere. We ended up with well over 100 applications, um, which was surprising of all queer-identified comedians, which was cool. Um, and we picked our top 40, um, and then a few people were invited. Well, there, there's more shows at Funhouse than at the other venues. Right. Yes, if there was one, that the Funhouse has the most shows. Funhouse is our core venue. But then, Mothership. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But then Ford, there's a, a Ford Food and Drink and Crush Bar and Curious Comedy Theater. Okay. I'll have shows at them as well. Great. Yeah. On and different we're, nights. We're yeah. at the Funhouse Lounge now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All clowns are relegated. Elvis uh, Velvet. There's a paintings. Velvet Elvis. That is the uh, wishing wall. That is uh, all uh, dead celebrities that you can you can put a coin in the little bank there, and Elvis will will sing a song. Oh, that's And so you can cool. make a wish to any of the celebrities. Everybody from H.P. Lovecraft to Betty Page, to Alan Rickman to oh. uh, uh, Frida Kahlo. That's so great. Maya Angelou and the Colonel. So, are you the owner of this yes. establishment? And how long has the Funhouse Lounge been? Open? Seven years. Yeah, I've uh, I've seen a few shows here. Mm-hmm. I just went to my first. Well, I didn't perform at it, but my first like t- like traditional open mic or whatever. Oh sure, yeah, was yeah. Here. A couple oh weeks cool. Ago. And it was so many people, and then I got scared and I didn't sign up. <laughs> are you planning on doing? Are you planning on doing open mic? I uh, signed up for my first stand-up comedy class. Well, you know, the thing is, is that when I started comedy, I started comedy in Austin, and I didn't start comedy, stand-up comedy, until I was 32. Because, are you 32? <laughs> Yay! No, that's fantastic. Because the thing is, is that I was always like, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm too old to start stand-up or whatever, right? No, you do that to yourself. You totally do that to yourself. And then I took a class with Tom Booker in Austin, with, which was improv. And uh, so I started doing improv first, and then um, Tom encouraged me, and he would introduce me to people as a stand-up, and I'd be like, I'm not, though, you know, and uh, whatever. And so I started doing it, and I think it's the best thing you can, I mean, even if, like, I mean, even if you're not, like, intending to go a professional with it or whatever, it's, like, the best. It's, like, yeah. you're like, oh, this is this internal drive to say my things. Like, that's the only thing it is. Because, you know, because, I mean, we're not doing it for the glory, so. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. Um, yeah, so that's the thing is if you follow that internal drive, that's that's what builds you and that's what gives you the courage to get up again. Because the first time I ever did an open mic, I did my first open mic at Cap City Comedy in Austin, and um, uh, Rooftop taped it, which was which was crazy. So I didn't know it was online. So I did my first open mic, and I was like, I, I almost couldn't get back up on stage again. I was like, I'm not doing this again. And my friend Holly saw my open mic set on Rooftop.com, and called me and was like did you do stand-up comedy and I was like yeah and she's like you're totally doing that again she's a stand-up too and she was like you're gonna do that again and I was like no I'm terrified and she was like no you have to so she literally dragged me to two more open mics before I would get up again 
And then, so, so like, without somebody, like, insisting that I get up again, I may have never gone up again. We're going to have a uh, Queer and Allies open mic at the festival on Thursday at uh, 10.30. Yeah. And uh, you can totally sign up, and it'll it's be called, outside. It's going to be on the patio. It's, it's going to be uh, awesome. It's called It Gets it's Better dot Mike. <laughs> How do you guys feel about the It Gets Better thing on YouTube? I th oh, I think it's great. I actually wrote a, um, I wrote a It Gets Better for the Mercury, like, five or six years ago. Oh, nice. Yeah, I love I love uh, Dan Savage with criticisms. I love Dan Savage. Um, <laughs> right? I mean, asterisk and, but, like, I love Dan Savage, and, uh, and I love the whole It Gets Better thing, because when I was a kid, because I came out at 14, and uh, I started coming out at 14, and I was, like, really out by the time I was 17, and when I came out, there was no resources at all. Like, the only resources I had was to go to the local library, get books about being gay, try to piece together where the gay community would be, maybe, and then, like, I found out about a queer coffee shop. I was just talking to a kid that's, like, 21 last night about this exact thing, and then I had to find out where the queer coffee shop was, and then I found the queer coffee shop, and then when I walked in, and then I, like, had coffee, and I left real fast because I was really scared. You know, so I was, like, super scared. And so then I would go back, and I would, like, check out, the, like, the bulletin board. And then I found out about the city nightclub. And then I was like, there's a nightclub. And then I was like, how am I supposed to go to a nightclub? You know what I mean? You can't go to a coffee house. I can't even go to a <laughs> coffee house, right? And so I met Micah, who was my very first lesbian friend. And so she and I became friends. And I was, like, 15, and she was 20. She was just so much older. And uh, so, yeah, so that's how I got introduced to the gay community. But there was, like, this, it was this this search it was like you didn't just go online and like google you know queer people or whatever and then boom you know it was like you had to like really piece together and so then you you then you knew what to do but like previous to that like when you're just like in your evangelical southern missionary baptist house with your brothers so yeah you, you have to you have to ferret through like all of this information to be able to even find it so that's one of the reasons why i love smirk uh, and that's one of the reasons, because Smirk didn't exist then either. And so, you know, the existence of Smirk, the existence of the internet, I'm all for it. I am on a more recent journey of discovery, like in the <laughs> last couple of years. I'm still figuring out where I fall exactly. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, that's kind of it for me right now. Okay. That's, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. He's a letter, yeah. he's not sure what letter. Yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what it is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought I was one thing for a while, and it seems I'm more in the middle somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I feel like everybody is going through life on a journey. I don't feel like, because like for me, like I realized really young that I was queer, um, but through circumstances, right? So I was able to like explore that part of myself, and then I realized that was my part of myself, and then I just you know went with it. Um, and I feel like that I have some friends. I have a friend of mine who just came out like three years ago. She was married to a man for like. 15 years and like she just got divorced and like now she's you know she realized she was queer in the relationship and you know whatever and so it's a complicated thing it is it is a complicated thing and I feel like now I mean recently since there's been more work around uh, trans and queer kind of um, issues it's like giving people permission in a way to explore yes. parts of themselves that maybe they didn't and mainstream people Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so we, yeah, I was just talking about that recently because, you know, the festival, I feel like couldn't have existed like five years ago because now it feels like 
that queer has gone mainstream, but a lot of people are recognizing the queerness within themselves as opposed to assigning it to a community or another group. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And then once you once you incorporate that within yourself, you know, you, at that point, you you can't be anything but sympathetic toward the, the greater community of, of people. And so, you know, I feel like that's a real big tide turner for um, a lot of people. So you've been performing, doing comedy for... I've been performing comedy for 10 years. Okay. It'll be 10 years in September. What made you want to start the Queer Comedy Festival? Um, it seemed like there was, uh, there were other, you know, you had Bridgetown, which is a comedy festival, but you had special, you, you had other specialized festivals. You had, uh, what, the, the Northwest Black Comedy Festival. Mm-hmm. All Jane. You had All Jane. You had that, and I'm just like, why is there now... It's not that there's a shortage of queer comedians. It's ridiculous. And the Funhouse um, houses a lot of shows that are run by queers and that are queer themed, um, for lack of a better. There's like, very much you know. a vibe here of, of inclusiveness. Um, and so uh, my idea, you know, I thought, why isn't there one? And how cool would it be if people could come from like some small town somewhere where they can't do their stuff? Like Charlie McCorn last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was from, like, rural Montana. To come somewhere, to go to a festival. These are even comedians who would go to regular festivals and not really be able to really be themselves. What if you go somewhere and really be yourself? You know? And I think that uh, uh, that idea just, you know, it just, it hits a chord. So how have you seen the queer community uh, evolve over the years that you've been here? That's a a big question. Um, I think that... Um, I think that, well, because I, I came out in 1992, 93, right? I feel like, I mean, I feel like the complete the community's completely evolved. Because, I mean, back then we were in the middle of the AIDS crisis. Um, Measure 9 was, uh, was being fought at that time. Uh, and we were fighting against it. And there was a huge divisiveness in the... In the entire 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 state, really. What was um, uh, Measure Nine? I like know I've read about it, okay. but I can't remember. So Measure Nine was a was a measure that was uh, Oregon Citizens Alliance. So Oregon Citizens Alliance was an extremist right group, uh, and their whole thrust was to introduce these anti-gay measures. And so in uh, 1990, they uh, introduced Measure Eight, and so Measure Eight. Uh, was actually a stronger version of Measure 9. Uh, and so basically the, the legislation read, um, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, that uh, homosexuality, uh, uh, and, and this would modify the Oregon Constitution, P.S., by the way, um, that homosexuality was going to be deemed abnormal and on par with pedophilia, sadomasochism, and a host of other things, right? Bestiality, you know, so on and so forth. And so what it would have done, and the, the language is so vague, that what it would have done was put discrimination into the Oregon Constitution and would have allowed people to be fired because they're gay or allowed them to not get housing and, uh, you know, that type of thing. And so there was a huge uh, division uh, in Oregon amongst uh, straight people and gay people because for a lot of straight people, this is the first time they'd ever talked about being gay in their houses. And so what was happening was there was a lot of news coverage, there was a lot of, you know, the right screaming on TV about how abnormal and perverse we were, and and uh, so you had a lot of fighting. So you had a lot of infighting, and you had a lot of uh, uh, things like there was a guy that was killed via Molotov cocktail, 
there was a, there was people getting their trees set on fire in their in their yards uh, for having a no on nine placard and, and that type of thing. And gay bashings were I was gay bashed twice. Gay bashings were you know common like you'd just be like got gay bashed today you know. Uh, so it was it was that kind of atmosphere and so um, coming from that atmosphere so that that's kind of the the, the nexus of when. Oregon became so queer accepting um, because at that time we had such a deep conversation about gayness and what gayness meant uh, that it kind of galvanized uh, straight people and gay people um, to fight for queer rights. And so that's where you, I mean, I, I believe that, so Measure 8 was passed. Measure 8 was overturned by the Supreme Court. They came back with Measure 9. Uh, Measure 9 was defeated, but only by two points. That's what a lot of people forget. It was only by a couple of points that Measure 9 was defeated. Um, and then they came back with uh, Measure 13, and then they had, so they tried several uh, times. And, uh, and so they ended up, uh, they ended up, you know, ultimately failing. However, um, Scott Lively, which was the number two, he's the second in command uh, in the OCA, uh, wrote a book, and it's uh, behind the pink swastika, something to that effect. It's pink swastika. And it's about uh, Nazi Germany being run by homosexuals. That was the, the uh, assertion, right? And no, but this is the thing. It was written in 1996. You can look this up. It's Scott Lively. So Scott Lively is uh, on the ballot right now in Massachusetts for governor. And he won the primary. So we have to be vigilant in, in, in watching these people because those people almost tore Oregon apart at that time. Like, it was, it was intense. Like, watch the documentary. There's a documentary called Measure 9 and everybody should watch it, um, about Kathleen Sadat and Donna Redwing and all the people that fought uh, for, uh, for Noah 9. And that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it, is because I feel like our voices is the only way to combat the uprising of the tolerance of hate. We were talking about the evolution of uh, the queer community, so that's like where you started at 93, yeah. um, when all that stuff was going on. And yeah. then what do you see now? When Didi and I were talking... Uh, they were saying that like the negative stuff is what gets all the attention. So right. like, people committing suicide and right. depression and the gay bashing and the you know that stuff is what gets uh, media attention. But like, what about the open mics and the writing music and poetry and all the things that are happening that are really beautiful? Right. Well, it's the thing like is, this queer comedy fest. And I mean, just I mean, everything is 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 much more open and much more accepting. I mean, just on a night and day level. Like I, I can't even. In fact, I've got a good uh, example of that. So I have a history tour called New York City. Uh, it's Pride Forever from New York City called Pride's Forever. And so I did that yesterday. And one of the guys on the tour was on the tour specifically to learn about queer history for his students because he runs the uh, Gender and Sexuality Alliance at Canby High School, and he's straight. So he doesn't know anything about queerness. So he went on the tour to learn all about queerness so he could take that back to his students. And so we made an arrangement so he's going to come back he's going to take his whole GSA on the queer history tour. Which, in, when I was in school, are you kidding? Like, no way. Like, I can't even imagine a world where my teacher would take me on a gay history tour. No way, you know what I mean? And so we have a huge movement toward, toward people being accepted for who they are at such a younger age than, than you know. Because back when, when I was a kid, when I came out, I came out really young for that time, right? But a lot of times, people wouldn't even accept your sexuality until you were, like, 
my mom didn't accept that I was actually gay until I was in my 20s. She kept waiting for it to be a phase, you know what I mean? That I hit about 23, and she's like, well, I guess this isn't changing, you know? But it took her a really long time because she kept expecting it to be a phase. And so, you know, so that's changing. And the one thing that parents can do, and I'm telling you, the one thing that parents can do is accept what your kid is telling you. That's it. Whatever your kid is telling you, accept it. If they're like, I'm, I'm this and I feel like this, that's fine. Just accept it. Because whatever they're, whatever they're doing, they're going to do, A. And B, you're going to permanently damage your kid if you don't do that. You know what I mean? It's like a, it's a huge passionate point for me. Yeah. Yeah. Portland Queer Comedy Festival, July 19th through the 22nd at Funhouse Lounge, Ford Food and Drink, Crush Bar, and Curious Comedy Theater. You can get your tickets at portlandqueercomedyfestival.com. We have four-day passes as well as individual ticket options. And, and, we have a youth pass, and the youth pass is all of our shows that end before 10 you can get into, and uh, it's $25 for all four days, and there's like 13 shows, I think.